The Bob Murphy Show, episode 244. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i'm going to be interviewing jason rank who is an award-winning producer and director of commercial and documentary films. He's worked with A-list talent and celebrities like Academy Award-winning actor Richard Dreyfuss, NBA player Lamar Odom, and Congressman Ron Paul. He's worked with global brands such as Aston Martin and Toyota. And recently, he was featured on The Tucker Carlson Show to discuss his latest documentary on January 6th, a film that got him permanently banned from Twitter, Facebook, and Vimeo. But besides Jason's formal bio, let me just mention... Well, I tell the story, so I won't dwell on it right now. When we get into the interview, we talk about how we met. It was back at a Tea Party event, back when the Tea Party was cool. And uh, anyway, so that's that, and I'll tell the story when we get into the interview. Uh, let me just mention, too, besides the documentary on January 6th, what we're talking about is Jason also has a documentary on Nick Fuentes that came out, and that it was originally going to be shown at Freedom Fest and then wasn't, and so Jason's telling his version of events. So obviously the people at Freedom Fest have their version of events, but I think I played devil's advocate in the interview to give everybody both sides on these controversial topics. And so we report, you decide. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jason Rink. Well, Jason, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, Bob. Good to be on with you. It's, I don't think I've ever been on here with you, so that's, it's a first. I'm, I'm really excited. Right. I had to mentally run the check, and I was going to say, do I say welcome back? And I say, no, I think I'm just going to say welcome. Yeah. Uh, so I will have said this in the introduction you know, that I record for this, but uh, again, just for people who sometimes maybe skip that and jump right in the interview, I met you, I became aware of you, it was at the, what's that called? The Tea Party. Yeah. And it was in Ohio. What was, was it Cincinnati? Yeah, yeah, we were at the uh, Ooh, fifth, third fifth Third Arena. Center. Yeah, something yeah. like that. And it, it was, and I was funny. I don't know if you remember this, but it was Sean Hannity was supposed to be the headliner for that event, and then he pulled out. He was going to record his show there, and then he re- pulled out the last minute, and we didn't know, you know, why. And then the official story was, oh, executives at Fox were concerned that the organizers of that event were charging like a lot for tickets, like to be near Sean Hannity, and so and so the Fox network said. Oh, we, we, we're, we're not doing it because of concerns over profiteering. Right. So then in my talk, I wanted to let people know that I was going to be selling books afterward, but I didn't, <laughs> like, I'm not very markety. And so I came up with a way and I said, now folks, just to be clear, after my talk, I'm going to be selling books and there will be profiteering. And everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because people who weren't around in the Ron Paul 2007, 2008 days, which that's where I got, you know, into all of this, don't realize that actually, you know, Fox News and the conservative GOP was was a little bit skeptical. They didn't know how to take the Tea Party back then. Like, it wasn't a completely GOP taken over thing. And so I know that, you know, especially in Ohio, a lot of mm-hmm. the organizers of the, the organization that did that were all came out of the Ron Paul movement. And so, um, or, or were adjacent to it. And so I remember when I spoke there, um, I think I spoke on anti-war. You did. Let me, yeah, let me just, just for the listeners. So my point is like, you impressed me greatly because is, by the way, folks, this is in a, a basketball arena. Like this was a huge, you know, this yeah, was I the biggest Yeah, I think there was like 5,000 people there. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't packed, but I'm just saying it was a yep. big, it was certainly the biggest thing I've done in my career so far in terms of speaking, you know, so we're all, the speakers are all on the basketball court. And I had a joke too, that I was moving around. And I said something like, oh, it's just my natural flashbacks. I don't want to get called for a three-second violation, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, half the guys chuckled and other people are like, what's he talking about? But, um, <laughs> but you get up and you like explain how you had been a pastor and you're doing, so you're winning all these right-wingers over and then you hit them with, and the, the U.S. shouldn't be bombing babies in foreign countries. And I was yeah. like, this guy's crazy. I can't believe he just said that. 
Yeah. But you got away with it. Like they didn't boo you. Like you had won their trust first and then you told them, I'm not sure Jesus wants us bombing people, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, hey, we're sending missionaries and money over there, but then let's blow them up. You know, it seemed like a contradiction, but yeah. So we've known each other a long time. I've been on the Contra Cruise with you guys, helped you guys out with some of the content for that. And you and I've got a history as as well in the whole uh, infinite banking world, which is sort of like libertarian adjacent, you know, in my opinion. And so, yeah, yeah, we've hung out a number of times. So it's good to chat. I love that you're having me on to discuss this topic. So I guess, can you explain a little bit about your background and then how did you get into making films? Is that, is that yeah. the word? Do we, do we call them films now or is, is that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I like to. Like, do I people like to still put out records? Way. I don't know if you yeah, can call right. it that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I'm old school, so it feels more official when I call it a film yeah. rather than a video, right? But um, I had been previously a pastor back in, in in 2003 to 2006 and got involved in Ron Paul's campaign in 07, 08, really opened my eyes up to a lot of the issues that Ron Paul was talking about. I was working in commercial banking at the time. I didn't know anything about the Federal Reserve and I learned about the Federal Reserve, got involved in Ron Paul's campaign, studied Austrian economics, started saying, wait a minute, soon found myself involved in the campaign. And then this spinoff organization that we were just talking about was sort of the aftermath of like how to organize people for liberty in Ohio after that. And I found myself speaking at end the Fed rallies and, and such things, and then going on Monday morning into Chase Bank, working in the commercial banking department. So, you know, even back then, you know, we really sort of the genesis of, of sort of the next phase of my life was that we had a big rally at the State House in, in Columbus, Ohio. Andrew Napolitano came out. There was 10,000 people there. I spoke at it. And I found myself on Greta Van Susteren later mm-hmm. that night in 2009. And I got on there, started talking about what we were doing, all of this. And Chase Bank got a hold of, got wind of this seized my laptop the next day, sent out a message to the whole business banking. You can't take any unapproved media appearances, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Can and I, I re- ask you, did it identify you as an employee of Chase Bank? Well, it, it's funny. If you if you Google Jason Rink, Greta Van Susteren on YouTube, you'll find the clip. It's still there because this was like 2009. And mm-hmm. she ended up asking me about what I did for a living. And I was sort of like, um, you know, I'm doing this on my own. It's just like a concerned citizen. Mm-hmm. But it sort of, it sort of, the cat was out of the bag at that point. And I just realized I was at a point of decision. Like I could either continue in corporate America or I could try to figure out how to, you know, do this for a living or do something else that more aligned for me. And so, you know, I had gone to film school in the early 90s. That's what I wanted to do with my life. But I sort of, God and life took a different course for me. And so I started thinking about how could I get into production? And I had an opportunity to move down to Austin to lead a nonprofit down here that was, you know, libertarian education. And I was like, you know, I think we can start making content out of this. And so I left commercial banking, came down to Austin in 2009, been down here ever since, and made my first film, Nullification, The Rightful Remedy, with Tom Woods and Michael Bolden. Um, I believe that was 2011. And uh, that was sort of my bootstrapped documentary, didn't know what I was doing, and ended up putting that into uh, Anthem Film Festival at Freedom Fest and won a couple of awards and won the Audience Choice and Best Libertarian Ideals back in 2012. And so ever since then, I've been on a journey. I've got my own production company now. I, I worked. I spent three to four years working with John Popola at Emergent Order. Um, John mentored me in many, many areas of, of what I do now. And for people um, who don't know, among his other feathers in his cap, John made the Kane's Hayek rap videos. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, I had the opportunity to work with a great company that was doing free market economics and libertarian leaning education and entertainment. And so that's continued to be what I wanted to do was create content that would have like an impact or that would be around the ideas that I'm interested in. So I have a separate production company that does commercial work for corporate clients and things. And then I have sort of my own company where I'm producing other content that is more long-form documentary. So now you just make commercials for Chase Bank. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, but under a pseudonym, they don't know who I am. No, but uh, yeah. So your um, money is safe. Yeah. (laughs) 
So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I still got to pay for my bills somehow. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I'm fortunate in that I'm very independent. I have a business that the clients that we work with are pretty on board with. They know who I am. They know what I'm up to. They don't care. Like, we do good work. I also, you know, am funding my own projects right now. So I'm not seeking... I mean, I would love to raise money to make these films. And ultimately, I'm looking to monetize the films I'm doing. But right now, I have total independence on what I what films I make, what I talk about, how I tell the story, which is a, a lot of freedom for me to have. And with freedom comes cancellation. Yeah, so exactly. Why don't yeah. we talk? So I guess the the big one where besides, you know, so I guess what's ironic is originally you, you got pushed back even from your chase. Yeah. You know, so this is actually goes way back where you're starting to get real world consequences, not just people on the, on the internet calling you names. Yeah. Which is yeah, mostly that, what that is. Most of us have gotten, yeah. So, yeah, that, that is true, yeah. So, but in terms of, you know, re- really when you all of a sudden got in hot water, and I even noticed this myself, like I could just, in, you know, our dealings with various, like you, well, well you tell the story, but it had to do with this, the alleged, the ostensible insurrection of January 6th, and you, yeah. were, you were near there, and then what, why don't you tell us what happened? Yeah, so the Tea Party story we told earlier is really a perfect segue into this, because Leading up to the 2020 election, you know, I, I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016. Wasn't like a MAGA guy, but saw some things happening over the course of Trump's presidency that helped me understand that, you know, no matter what the problems with the right might be that will go off into authoritarianism, they don't have Hollywood, corporate media, woke corporations, academia, the schools, whatever sort of in their back pocket to help them accomplish those things through shaping culture and propaganda. And so I, I started to see that really the left is the force that needs to be stopped as I'm defining it because they have all those cultural institutions. As I started to see that, I started to recognize that it's possible that you could support Trump in an election as a way to sort of buy time or like, you know, we're, you know, it could get a lot worse based on what I've just laid out under a Biden administration. And so as I was moving to 2020, I was starting to think, you know, I might actually vote for Trump this year. And as we got to the election, people that I was following and things on Twitter and, and Facebook, um, and, you know, I had like 4,000 uh, friends on Facebook. I had a couple thousand followers on Twitter. I started seeing this uh, election protest, the election integrity movement start to bubble up. And for me, what I really saw was that it was like the Tea Party, but a little bit more anti-establishment or, or much more anti-establishment. Because when the Tea Party happened, it was quickly taken over by GOP insiders. Right. And it really made it very ineffective. You know, we get Rand Paul and Thomas Massey and Justin Amash and a few others out of that. But ultimately, it's, it failed. And so what I saw with Trump was that he had energized a group of people who really recognized these other forces of the deep state or mm -hmm. the establishment that were against him. And so I thought, you know, this is going to be an interesting story. That's just all I thought. I thought this is what's happening right now is going to be something. I want to be there. So I, I initially started by, I really reached out on Twitter. I sent a, created a little video, sent it to, or tagged Ali Alexander, who was like running the Stop the Steal movement. And he messaged me back. Hey, Jason, said, just for the benefit of people who might either be foreign or yeah. are listening to this down the road, just define what, what's Stop the Steal. What is that? Yeah, so Stop the Steal ended up being a grassroots series of rallies and protests and an online organization of people who believed that there were significant questions about the 2020 election. Very and it's, were they up and running even before the election happened? Like they were looking at the procedures and the voting, you know, the mail-in ballots and stuff and saying, hey, we got to yeah. pay attention because it looks like they're going to steal the election. It wasn't just past tense. Yeah, I mean, t if you go back in a few years in history, you'll see that Ali Alexander, who has ran the Stop the Steal organization, he's been sort of a political strategist and a very effective online organizer and was involved in some other election-oriented things back in Florida, I believe, in 2018. They exposed some election fraud there, and so in a minor way. And so he had built a bit of an infrastructure around it, but he wasn't planning to do this. Like, 
he was recruited really by other people who said, hey, we really think there's problems here. And they basically decided <laughs> yeah, to just, just to clarify, it. though, my point, though, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't that, oh, after Trump lost, they said, oh, but, 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 well, they stole the election. That yeah. going into it ahead of time, they were warning, hey, there's some issues here. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and even people like Ken Paxton here, the AG of Texas in June of 2020, I think, you know, he warned Trump about some things that were happening because Ken Paxton had to fight like 13 lawsuits or court cases that he had to win to prevent like millions of these mail-in ballots from being sent out because of the lack of chain of custody that was going to be around them. And so there was, a, there was a number of people warning and saying things to the Trump administration prior to that. People had been involved in things before. So when it all started to go down, they said, well, we're going to rally around this. And so it was not officially aligned with the GOP or the RNC or even the Trump campaign initially. It was really one event at D in DC, I, I want to say it was like the weekend after the election. There was a big, huge rally in DC. And so out of that came what ended up happening, which was organizing at all of the different states and different leaders rose up. And you had a very crazy mixture of people involved. A guy named Brandon Straka, who is like a gay man who ran something called Walk Away, which was for Democrats who are moving over to the Trump side since 2016. He had like a half a million people on a Facebook group. Those people got involved. You know, you had a, a really crazy coalition that came, Alex Jones, you know, Nick Fuentes, like just all these different people started to get together. And so I saw that happen that first time and then ended up a week later in Georgia for like sort of the next big event because I just asked Ali, like, hey, can we follow what's you guys? Can okay, so, so you're going around with a camera? Like yeah. just getting footage at yeah. the stop the steal thing that happened right after the election that you yep. said was in DC. Yeah, I was in. I was on the road for like the next ten weeks with a, mm. a filmmaking partner of mine, and we were like riding in cars with the organizers. Mm. We were behind the scenes. We were covering hearings. We were interviewing the people involved and all of that. And we just were like, "Hey, we don't know where this is going, but we're going to document it and make a documentary from the inside." Right. Right. And so. All of that led up to January 6th, which was going to be a Trump rally mm -hmm. followed by speeches by a lot of these different leaders and speakers over on one side of the the, the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And so, so at the time you're making this, you're thinking the documentary is going to be the coronation of Emperor Trump. Well, what I would say is this. A lot of people thought that Jan 6 was actually just going to be Trump's last speech. Right, okay. Because most people understood and didn't believe that anything was actually going to change in the tallying of the election. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people, a lot of like regular people on the ground, you know, were like, hey, you know, a lot of Q people, people who were like into the conspiracy rabbit hole thinking that there was this double secret plan for mm -hmm. Trump and, you know, so you had plenty of people who thought that was going to happen, but I think that a lot of people who were in leadership, who were organizing this stuff, recognized nothing was really going to change and that Trump was going to give his last speech as president on January 6th, which is what generated what I think was close to a million people that day. Mm -hmm. And so the Stop the Steal organization actually had a, a permitted stage on one side of the Capitol where all the speakers were going to speak that day. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, there was no idea, you know, and I'm speaking as somebody that was, I was on planning calls two days before the event. There was no idea that there was going to be a breach to the Capitol, that people were going to go into the Capitol, that anything was going to happen like that. People were going to walk over there to listen to speeches. That, that was a permitted event. And so the way that Jan 6 went was very unexpected for all of us that were involved. In hindsight, it's kind of, you can look back and say, well, you could see how that would happen. But, you know, that was not a planned thing. And so by virtue of making a film on Stop the Steal, I find myself with a camera crew, uh, you know, in D.C. on January 6th. Mm -hmm. Just to transition quickly to the first cancellation I've got, the other bit of information is that in December, as we were going around the country, we had interviewed another guy who was sort of this odd character from Arizona 
who was at all of these different events, dressed up really strangely. And we did a sit-down interview with him in December of 2020, you know, talked to him about who he was, what he believed. Well, then on January 6th, the photos from inside the Capitol start coming out. And lo and behold, that guy we interviewed in December was the Q shaman with the horns and face paint, Mm -hmm. the very iconic figure of the day. And so when those photos started coming out and we saw that he got inside, my filmmaking partner, Paul, texted me and was like, oh my God, Jake got in. His name's Jacob Chansley. And I immediately was like, we got to interview him Mm -hmm. about what happened. And so we had a cell phone number because we'd already been in contact with him. He knew who we were. And so he agreed to do a sit down with us on January 7th at 10 a.m. in a hotel right near the Capitol. And that would end up being the only sit down interview like that he gave like that prior to being arrested two days later. And he's been in jail ever since then. And so we found ourselves in a situation where we like had this very tell all interview from the most iconic figure of the day. And we decided, you know, we've got a whole separate documentary potentially to start making on this guy to sort of tell the story of the lead up and the, and the day of Jan 6 and the aftermath. And so that's what sort of pivoted our project to start working on a, a film about him, which leads me to putting out the first trailer for that film, you know, about a week after January 6th. And that's where all of my trouble began. Now, hang on. Is he is his name Jake Angeli or Jacob Chansley? His his given name is Jacob Chansley. Uh-huh. He goes by Jake Angeli. He doesn't like the moniker Q Shaman, but you don't get to pick the names people give you in the media, right? Right, so. right. Okay. Before you, I, I'm curious to talk a little bit more about him, but did you know in December when you were interviewing him, did you have any inkling that this guy might be a bigger deal down the road? Or was it just like, hey, look at this guy. Let's get him on. No. And, and was he dressed? I know you said he was dressed strangely, but was he as strangely as January 6th or? Yeah, no. He So he, he had showed up because we went to Arizona a couple of times and mm-hmm. he was in Arizona a few times. So we'd seen him. We had filmed him, never talked to him or interviewed him. But then in DC, he was actually dressed in a suit with a MAGA hat, d- drumming in front of like the Supreme Court, I think. You know, he was like trying to sort of cast out evil spirits through like a shaman thing. So he looked like a kind of normal guy, except for the fact that he's, you know, drumming in front of the uh, Supreme Court. But we knew it was the same guy. Mm -hmm. And so I actually didn't, I was actually kind of not interested in in interviewing him. Mm -hmm. It was the other guys that were with, they're like, hey, and it was kind of the first interview that we really did in D.C. And so we're like, okay, yeah, let's just interview him and get a guy who's involved in this thing, clearly. We had no idea, didn't think we'd see him again. So it was, it was literally a series of like divine providence, right place, right time, having built a access and relationship mm-hmm. with a guy who then becomes this iconic figure of the day. So just for people, what is, I just looked and he, he was what, sentenced to 41 months? Yeah, yeah. So what happened is that with January 6th, what I like to talk about a lot is that I have seen how the January 6th narrative is very sacred to the regime Mm -hmm. or the establishment. And so because January 6th had to be like the next 9-11, the next civil war, insert whatever thing, they charged as many people as possible. And actually, Michael Sherwin, who I think is, he's with the Department of Justice, he went on 60 Minutes and talked about how after Jan 6, before the inauguration, their goal was to try to charge as many people as possible through a shock and awe campaign and that they started with internet influencers and people who had big platforms or notoriety to be a part of that. And so they just went ahead and cast the biggest net possible and pulled as many people in as possible. And so... Jake was one of those people. He was arrested two days later. He ended up spending almost 300 days in solitary confinement because during COVID, they used that as an excuse as to why they had to put all these people in solitary confinement. And so this is pre-trial. This is, and he was denied bail because he wrote a threatening note to Mike Pence and he had a spear tip on the top of his flagpole. And so he was denied bail. So he spent 300 days in jail and the biggest felony that most people were charged with. Over 200 people who went in the Capitol were charged with a felony that was basically 
interrupting an official proceeding. It's interrupting Congress. Mm-hmm. Carries a maximum of 20 years in prison. And so that charge was put in place and has generated many, many plea deals because these people started to recognize they might not get a fair trial in this whole situation. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, that they're facing 20 years for a felony. So Jake ultimately was never charged with a violent crime. He uh, was never charged with insurrection. The biggest charge he ever had was interrupting Congress. He pled guilty to that charge and received a 41-month sentence. He received credit for time served prior to sentencing. He was just sentenced in November. So he's got another, oh, close to two years that he will be serving if he serves the full time. Okay. So as far as the blowback on you then, so you you meant, just can you reiterate, because I think I interrupted you. No, no, that's so fine. So how did you, this is what, because you got the footage of this guy and then, hey guys, let's let's do a document. Now we got two documentaries. We got the Stop the Steal and then we got to talk about this Q Shaman guy. Yeah. And this is when you started noticing like definite yeah. blowback and, you know, consequences to your yeah. personal life. I still had all my social media at this time mm-hmm. and we recognized that there was like a window of time where the trajectory of his media presence was like going through the roof. And so we're like, hey, we want to leverage this. Like we, we knew we had the only interview mm-hmm. likely that he would give. And so we put together a trailer with footage for the Stop the Steal and of him and the media sensation of him and like the memes and, you know, everybody was talking about him. And, you know, it was sort of a lighthearted, like it was sort of like, this is a weird individual that everybody knows caught in a very crazy situation. And he's, talking a little bit in his own words. So we put out like a two and a half minute trailer on, I believe, January 12th. And I put it on YouTube. And I think within a handful of hours, it had gotten like eight or 9,000 views. And I had posted a version of it to Twitter and Facebook or links to the YouTube on Facebook and a native video on Twitter. And, you know, I just didn't think there would be any issue because it wasn't like, it, w- it wasn't like saying the election was stolen. It wasn't saying mm. like Trump's awesome. It was just like, here's this guy. We've got a movie about him. And within 12 hours, Twitter had suspended my account and then Facebook had su- suspended my account. And it was permanent, no recourse. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't dispute it. It was just, you're gone. No, it wasn't take the post down. And then YouTube shortly after pulled the video say it was inciting violence. That's when I recognized, whoa. And I think a lot of people in my universe also recognized it because I'd always conducted myself on social media as kind of a guy facilitating conversation. Mm -hmm. I would like try to get people with different opinions to play nice together on my page. And, you know, like, I think a lot of people recognize that, you know, I didn't come across as like a political radical or a Trump mega guy or whatever, whatever it was even though I was following these stories that was like on the fringe, right? The election and Jan 6. But when those got pulled down because of the trailer, for me, that was a strike against independent media, journalism, documentary filmmaking. Because I can tell you that if I put out a trailer that made him out to be like the Osama bin Laden mastermind of January 6th, I don't think it would have got him pulled down. Right. It was the fact that it showed him to be sort of a, somebody way different than you might suspect he is. That like maybe he's this interesting, well-spoken, intelligent guy with some out there ideas who kind of went into the Capitol and didn't hurt anybody and didn't hurt anything. The other thing that's interesting, I'll just say, is that, you know, one of the one of the things that's really intriguing for me about Jake's story, as he told it on January 7th, is that even back then, less than 12 hours or 24 hours from the event, he talked about how they were led into the Capitol, waved in, like certain things that he told that video has later come out and confirmed. Everything he said is checked out. And some of the things were so unbelievable. Like he tells me that he went in and led a prayer with some other guys like in the Senate chamber or whatever it was. And it's like, yeah, that actually happened. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. it, it was just beyond belief. So that's the other thing for me is that Jake has a lot of credibility because he told a story before video came out to either support or deny it. And it's all supported everything he said. And so 
you know, I feel like there's a dimension of, of getting a story out there that's just truthful. Whereas he was very demonized in, and that the narrative took the front seat and everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, have that's you, how it's, Have you confirmed his claims that there's underground chambers where they're working on anti-gravity I, I, I did not. We did not get so, there. And I don't think we have yeah, the footage of that. By the way, so just for people who know, so there was, you didn't, was that your interview, the earlier one? Because after he became famous, there was a release from something he had given in an earlier thing where he was talking about yeah. this global network of the elites and da 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 da, da. Yeah. Was that your yeah, footage no. or was that somebody I else's? I, I don't believe so. Okay. We, we have two interviews and one be- the one before Jan 6, he's talks about a lot of like kind of out there mm-hmm. stuff. So, but but just so you know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing that for comedic effect, yeah. but I actually, I'll link to it, folks. So right now, remember everyone, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 244 for links to all the stuff Jason and I are talking about. But I did an episode saying, here's what he's talking about in that the clip that, you know, went viral where I, I wasn't endorsing it, but I was just saying, yeah. he's not speaking gibberish. I know like he's referring to various theories. Yes. And let me just make sure you know this is what he's talking about and there's, you know, people anyway, so. Yeah, well, and it's something that I think people would be wise to understand about the QAnon phenomenon is like my experience with the QAnon phenomenon and like the Q mindset is it's sort of like the golden corral buffet of conspiracy theories. It's like, they're, it's like they all find their way into it. It's like the granddaddy of globalist, you know, conspiracy, you know, it's just, it just, it brings them all in to a certain degree. And so it's like talking about the Federal Reserve, talking about secret tunnels, mm-hmm. talking about lizards, talking about, you know, whatever, the fake UFO phenomenon that's going to be used to bring in global martial law, like whatever it is, it's kind of finds its way in there. And then at the core of it was this idea that Trump was secretly had this secret cabal of white hats that were going to just let things play out to sort of then finally take all of the left, the bad people away in cuffs, you know, on inauguration Mm -hmm. day, Mm -hmm. which was obviously not true. When we interviewed Jake on the 7th, he still believed Trump was going to be inaugurated like two weeks later. And anybody who watched Jan 6 go down is like, hey, listen, I don't know what might have happened before, but it sure ain't going to happen now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so... Yeah, so very unconventional beliefs. And can, can um, I ask you, Jason? Uh-huh. Do, so, for the benefit of people who might have missed these details, so when you were saying like how he was claiming we were let in, where there, yes, footage did emerge where at least on certain entry points into the building, the cops, you know, the door was open and the cops were saying things like, "You might not agree with it, but respect it." Yeah, and presumably what they meant to the people marching in was, "I know you don't like that Biden won the election, but you know, don't." you know, just, hey, this is a democracy, whatever. Yep, yeah. They weren't saying, stop in the name of the law, this is an illegal entry. Like, yeah. and so there, and there were people, so I could see how, yeah, you're in a crowd to see Trump. He says, we're going to march down there. You're just following the crowd and you're walking in and the cops are opening the door for you. Yeah. A lot of them honestly did not think they were doing anything illegal. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I on the other side, it's like the Capitol Police were overwhelmed, like 100%. Mm-hmm. They were totally understaffed. There was like hardly anybody standing on the Capitol lawn in front of the reflecting pool to stop the first wave that came in. And so, and that's a whole side conversation, but it's like, you know, at a certain point, what are you going to do when you're overwhelmed? It's like, well, just, you might as well try. I mean, right. Yeah. It, it, like, what are you going to start they're not the conversation? Pull their pistol and start, yeah. the and start shooting people. So, yeah. 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 And, you know, I don't want to, you know, that, again, getting into the details, but it's like, yeah, it's like, it was a very crazy situation. And, um, but at the end of the day, it was turned into something where the Department of Justice has been weaponized against many people. The Jan 6 committee was pulled together, has been used as this massive, broad, overreaching thing. I've been contacted by the January 6 committee. They want my footage. I've not been subpoenaed for it. But like, you know, I mean, I'm just a guy making mo- a movie here mm-hmm. and it's like, they want me to come in and give them everything I have. And so, yeah. So then when I got canceled and, and lost those social media accounts, people don't know the way this works, but like once you're banned personally for life on Twitter, you can set up other accounts, but eventually they all get taken down because evading permanent suspension is a violation of the rules. Mm-hmm. So you can set up other accounts. You know, people are like, you're not suspended forever. But it's like, no, I've had six accounts taken down. In fact, I just had my last account taken down 
it within the week, last week. Right. The thread you and I were using to set up this interview, I went to go check something and it wasn't in my, yeah. my inbox or whatever you call that anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. So once I get up to about 500 followers or a thousand followers, like I get on the radar and I'm not hiding who I am. I'm not writing under a pseudonym because I'm trying to use it to bring attention to what I'm doing. But yeah, so that's that continues to happen. I also have another film, short film that I'm working on called The Most Canceled Man in America. And that is a film about a guy named Nick Fuentes, who is a very controversial figure on the right. He runs a, a talk show called America First. He's like 23, 24 years old. He's been accused of being a white supremacist, white nationalist because of his views on race, immigration. And, you know, we met Nick during the Stop the Steal movement and something occurred in his life that we thought was really newsworthy. And so we decided to make a short film about that. But when I uploaded a rough cut of that video, a private link, it wasn't even public, Vimeo, which is a big video platform that especially people with video production companies use it for internal review of mm -hmm. videos. I had 4,000 videos on that channel, been there for 10 years. I spend over $1,000 a month on my account, about $2,000 a month. And they told me, hey, listen, you're gone. Gave me a week to take all my videos down and said, you need to go find another platform. And so it's continued to be waves of things that I've experienced. And it's not just been the one film. I lost other accounts that were related to our movie, The Steel, where, you know, thesteel.com, people can go there and, and check that out. And that's the film on the election that's, again, in post-production. And we had those accounts taken down because those violated, you know, the rules around, you know, not talking about the stolen election. And so, you know, what, it, what I found myself in is I'm making three projects. They're all on a different aspect that is cancelable. Jan 6, if you don't, if your story doesn't toe the narrative, you're likely going to be canceled about it. The election, if your content doesn't toe the narrative, you're likely going to be canceled. And then Nick Fuentes is literally the most canceled person in America and had the FBI seize a half million dollars from his bank account, put him on a no-fly list, didn't charge him with a crime, but they did that because he was present in DC, never went in the Capitol. So it's sort of all connected. And it's like, I've found three different specific places where I could make different content and continue to lose accounts on it. And so I say that I'm the most canceled filmmaker in America. I actually believe that's true now, especially since my latest run-in, which is that our film, uh, The Most Canceled Man in America, was taken off of the schedule at Freedom Fest. Hey, everybody. Just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so let's, I do want to follow up on that thread, but just for people, what caught my eye was, and I, this wasn't on my radar and that's why I was intrigued by this. It's, it's like, what, a 21 minute yeah, documentary on Nick doc. Fuentes? Yep. So, is that you're saying they seized a half a million dollars from him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So shortly after Jan 6, you know, he woke up one day and his there was a legal order on his account and his funds were unavailable to him. And he had um, almost a half a million or around a half a million for, for dollars what, in there. What are we talking about? Like his bank account or yeah, PayPal yeah. or what? His, his bank account. Now, he had already been banned from many, many payment processing platforms at that point and has been over, over time. He's, I think he's got 40 platforms. He's been banned from like Airbnb. Mm -hmm. You know, he's banned from Amazon AWS. He's banned from Spotify. And then he's banned from PayPal. He's banned from Twitter, Facebook, all of it. But when it came to this next level of, you know, and people can argue, you know, all day long about private companies, whatever, that's fine with all of that. But when it came to the fact that the FBI opened an investigation on him, seized his money, then he was put on a TSA no-fly list. And so for over a year, was unable to travel via plane, uh, was unable to access his money. Yeah, and he discovered that this was due to this FBI investigation and his, the investigation was that he was in D.C., he was at the Trump rally, he did not go in the Capitol, 
Um, and they have not charged him with a crime in any way, shape, or form, and, you know, seized his money and put him on that no-fly list as a result. And so, for me, that was a escalation of what I saw happening, but in a way that I thought that libertarians could care about. Even though most libertarians do not like Nick, they don't like his views on certain issues, but that the idea of, hey, we may not like what you believe, but we'll defend you to the death to be able to say it. Mm -hmm. And when the federal government comes in through the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and radically changes, in a way, imprisons somebody, like, or puts them on house arrest in a way, mm -hmm. without formally charging them with any crime, it's just a, you know, I look at that, and when we found out about that story, we said, you know, it doesn't matter what he believes. Like, it's irrelevant to this mm -hmm. issue. And in fact, what I think happens for most people is when they, when they find out that he has views that they think are reprehensible or disagree with, it makes it easy. If people could just label him a white supremacist, it makes it easy to say, I don't care to engage at all with any ideas here. I have no curiosity whatsoever about this egregious violation of due process and free speech because I don't like his speech. And even though people in the libertarian community wouldn't say that that's their position, mm -hmm. you know, when the rubber meets the road and, and what I feel like I've experienced in, in the last couple of weeks is that, yeah, we're not quite ready to get behind this guy on this issue. We'll wait until it happens to Glenn Greenwald or Spike Cohen or whatever. And it's like, what? You know, I mean, mm. that's not what people say. It's just like... That's the vibe that, you're getting? That, that's yeah. the vibe. It's like, hey, I could take any speaker at Freedom Fest and put them... If I put them in the situation that Nick was in, like, we, we're not... Like, people are outraged. There's going to... The whole community will be behind it, right? But it's like, no, this is just a guy. We don't like him. We don't like what he believes. We don't like what he represents. And so we're not going to... Uh, you know, they originally allowed the film to come into the festival, but then things happened and it got removed. And, you know, so to me, it says, hey, listen, we don't even have the space to let this story be told unless I sufficiently uh, disavow his beliefs or paint him in a sufficiently negative light in order for the story to be told. That's kind of what it's come down to at this point. And for me, I think that's a problem because we made certain choices in order to help people sort of see the story for what it was. And if they want to go and check out deeper into what Nick actually believes about things, I think it's worthwhile. But our 21-minute doc is about these massive egregious violations. And so we don't spend time in the film being like, Here's all the sound bites that Slate and Reason and whoever else, you know, go back to to say that this guy is, you know, whatever, right? No, we don't do that. And, um, you know, we could have, but it's a choice that we made. And we didn't do it in the film when, when, Freedom, when Anthem Freedom Fest allowed the film to get in. But then, you know, eventually in, in, you know, what I believe happened and what I was told happened was certain people got pretty mad about the fact that there was going to be a film that might show Nick in a positive light or create some sympathy or show him as being a victim of massive government overreach mm -hmm. that, frankly, most people in, in attendance at Freedom Fest and in that room have never experienced this kind of heavy hand of government coming against them. And so, yeah, yeah. So that happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, you know, at this point, the film has still not been you know, put back on the schedule. And I don't anticipate that it will be. Okay, yeah. So, and of course, you know, the the irony of you, you making a film to talk about people getting canceled and then worse things happening, like official yeah. government violation of property rights and anybody's definition. And then you being disinvited because presumably behind the scenes, yeah. some other people raised a fuss and, you know, the organizers yeah. are trying to placate the outside critics. And real quick on that point, what's sort of interesting is after the film got pulled, I still had a speaking spot at Anthem called like fighting the can cancel police or something like that. Like I was still had a spot to talk about that this topic mm -hmm. at the event. So they didn't 
fully cancel me because mm-hmm. I was still, they were still going to let me speak about this issue. But I was like, guys, I'm not going to speak about the, fighting the cancel police at a, the event that this is happening to me at without talking about what's happening here. And, you know, I'm not going to go into an event and just be like, blast them like when they, I've just, that's just, that's not an integrity for me. So I said, guys, if the film's not going to be on the, on the schedule, you know, just take me off. I'm not going to speak at the event either. Mm. And so that's what, how that all went down. And yeah. And, you know, for me, like, I, I think there's a couple of things that are larger than what some people might see as like a petty disagreement about, you know, or or a big disagreement about mm. whether or not a film should be screened, whether or not it sufficiently makes Nick out to be a bad guy, whether or not it should be there at all. The larger issue for me is actually, number one, who's really going to stand on this issue when it becomes costly? And over the last 18 months, you know, I've had to make decisions on whether or not I'm going to continue to double down to tell the stories I want to tell, even though it's cost me money, reputation, opportunities, all of my social media reach. So I can appreciate how people don't want to step into the the crap. Mm -hmm. You know, I get it. And I also say, well, what does that mean in a larger sense? Like, you know, my understanding is that certain people from large libertarian organizations made their opinion known, and that's what resulted in actually getting the film taken off. And for me, you know, I say, well, listen, that there goes the independence of the film festival. There goes the independence of the event. The next time a controversial film is submitted, I think they're just not going to accept it. Like, they're not going to step into this. And as filmmakers like myself continue to have fewer and fewer venues and festivals and platforms that we can screen and show this kind of content... Most filmmakers do not have the resource access to resources that I've had to make this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I just think fewer and fewer people will tell these types of stories. And so I think that's a problem too. So I, I think there's bigger issues at play that have to do with what libertarians really believe, what the organizations that are the most well-known really believe about this stuff, and who they're willing to allow the government to take their rights away without caring about it mm. or saying anything. Okay, let me play devil's advocate here and come up with, I think, what prima facie is a, a reasonable sort of mainstream beltway libertarian type objection to what you just said or, or point of view and then yep. let you respond, okay? So I could see somebody saying, look at Jason, we're not violating your property rights. You even admitted, you know, all these platforms have the right to do what they want. They're private companies. Freedom Fest is, you know, they're an organization that, you know, they don't owe you anything. Yep. So they have the right to do this. And we're just saying with the climate as it is right now, there's, you know, the left is accusing us of all being Nazis and things like that. So we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. It's an unforced error. There's plenty of more sympathetic people. We can highlight the injustices that the state commits against rather than Nick Fuente. So yeah, if you're asking me on the side, should they have seized his bank account? No, they shouldn't have. But I don't need to with the scarce time I have available and the public's attention of all the things to be talking about. Poor Nick Fuentes with his gripe or whatever and making jokes about the Holocaust. Yeah. That's that's stupid. Yeah. We should focus on something else. So what do you say to that? Yeah. And I actually overall agree with that statement. So meaning, you know, I submitted a film to a film festival that didn't have to accept it. Mm-hmm. But they watched it and they did. And there's some reasons why um, I think they didn't fully vet or know who Nick was. On one hand, uh, and because we don't really get into the the details of that in the film, it's a short film. You know, on one hand, I'm like, well, there's almost no excuse for that if you're running a political event in 2022. You know, it didn't occur to me that they didn't know who he, who he was, or at least I'm willing to admit that. And so if they would have rejected it initially, I don't have a problem with it. The fact that they ultimately rejected it and I believe it was a result of, you know, you could even call it clearer heads prevailing, Mm -hmm. which is like, oh, because they heard from Reason and Cato and MPI or whatever, whoever they heard from, like, then they were like, they they changed their minds. Okay, that's also fine, meaning that's what happened. 
the problem I sort of have in the whole thing right now is that I believe certain people want to maintain their independence that they claim to have. And publicly on Twitter said they weren't pressured, didn't receive, they basically denied that they did this in response to what I would say are sponsors and exhibitors of the event. And I even understand that. I'm just a random guy making a film and you've got exhibitors that spend ten dollars to $15,000 to be there. I understand the economics of that. Now, I would rather an organization admit that that's what's at play than to try to create a scenario that's just like, oh, we just had second thoughts, which is a bit how it's played out in their public statements around it. And that's not what they told me when mm -hmm. I talked to them. And so for me, it's changed a little bit in that I, I just want to say, hey, so the film is probably not going to come back and that's okay with me. Like, I'm not even that concerned about that. But I do now want to highlight what I think is potentially like the rotten foundation or the cracked foundation of some of these libertarian thinkers and organizations that hold a lot of sway in the space. And, and frankly, I think there's a shift happening right now. You know, the Mises Caucus taken over the LP is a canary in the coal mine, I, I believe, about, you know, where people are really at on some of these issues. And I think the old guard is represented in a lot of these organizations that refuse to engage in this topic at this mm -hmm. level. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that what people should also understand and appreciate is that Nick's power and popularity, let me say, has only exponentially grown as he's been canceled. And so he has a political event that's happened three times in 2021, it's called AFPAC. In 2021, there was 400 people there. In 2022, there was 1,200 people. Zoomers, under 25, gamers, meme lords, a very young crowd that is very, very loyal to what he's up to. Mm -hmm. He's got over 100,000 people on Telegram. He's got tens of thousands of people who watch his nightly live stream. And in a decade, he's going to be eligible to run for president. And so I think... It's a much better strategy to honestly engage with his ideas overall and acknowledge a, a massive wrong here. You know, I think that Freedom Fest had an opportunity to olive branch out to a side of, of the fastest growing side of the right, in my opinion, mm -hmm. in creating a space for the film to be shown that is now gone. And it also just gives Nick a little bit more like street cred. And so I think shutting down censoring conversations and engaging with people like one-on-one -on -one or in debate or whatever, like I think it's the best way to handle the ideas. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the other thing for me. So, you know, I would want, I would want people to know like, I, you know, uh, I don't hate the people at Freedom Fest. I've been friendly with them for a long time. I've judged the film festival before. My films won awards at it before. I still appreciate the space that they create, continue to create. And some of my favorite people and memories I've had over the last 10 years has been there at Freedom Fest. And I think when people see my film, they're going to see it and they're going to say, more than likely, they're going to say, yeah, we, we could see how maybe you could have done this or that different, but overall this guy's been wronged and people who care about liberty need to advocate even for people they don't like or disagree with when the government oversteps its bounds on these issues. I confess, I tried to do some research on him before, you know, I knew I was going to interview you and this was going to come up. I actually don't know that much about Nick Fuentes. I don't get why he's so, is he funny? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the other thing. People don't understand really the culture that he's created. Mm -hmm. Let me take a step back. I think a lot of people who are old, I mean, dude, I'm 47, okay? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even close to a Zoomer. But, like, I don't think that people in the Libertarian Party or in any, really any of the political parties have their finger on the pulse of what's happening in this corner of the, mo of the movement. When I say the movement, you know, anti-regime. Let me just put it that way. And it's like, you know, he is, he's funny. He is very well-spoken. He's very intelligent. 
he can organize people at the drop of a hat. We talk, we get into this in the film. And so it's like, part of the reason I think he's so, you know, attacked is actually because he's effective. Mm-hmm. And well, I was going to say the FBI can't seize 500,000 from my bank account because it's not in there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. He, he managed to generate that kind of money over a few, a few years with like super chats and, mm-hmm. you know, other, other means like massively popular following. And so, you know, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not going to like what Nick believes is what he believes. I have my own opinions about what he really believes and who he really is based on firsthand experience. You know, I've spent days with him. I've consumed hundreds of hours of his content. We interviewed different supporters. They're not in the film, but, you know, and so like I've actually, I've actually engaged with the ideas. We were actually not even going to put our names on this film when we started working on it. Cause I was like, there's no way this is death. You know, Mm -hmm. it's so toxic. And then as we started to dig into the story, I was like, this is too important. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. And I also started to see Nick as like a real human being Mm because he is like at the center of all this stuff is like a person who's having their rights violated. And I think it's, I think we could use more of that, frankly, like, and people might hear this, like I'm some big defender of Nick and it's really not true. Like the truth of the matter is, is this is the only time I've done an interview with somebody and created a piece of content where somebody said, hey, can you just make sure people know what you disagree with about that person? Right. Like, and put it in the film. And I'm like, I was never, I'm not, I'm not being asked to do that about anything ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I can say I disagree with the views of almost anybody I would ever interview or make a piece of content about. But what we, what we know is that there are certain areas where people are so afraid to be painted as a sympathizer. It's on, you know, it's on a few issues. And, and it's like, look, who I am and my reputation is what I put out there. Like, mm-hmm. I don't play the guilt by association. And I'm trying to make the strongest, most compelling and interesting piece of content I can about provocative issues and the issues that people aren't talking about. And so as a filmmaker, that's what I see my job as. I think that it's up to the viewer to have an experience and I am trying to accomplish something in the mind and the emotions of the viewer. I think a lot of people will go down a rabbit hole to try to find more about Nick and they'll find things they like and they'll find things that they don't. And that's mm-hmm. fine. It's been covered extensively by other people who have done pieces on Nick that hate him. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't hate Nick. Like, I actually, I actually think he's a pretty courageous person for what he's done. And, you know, and I think what's happening to him is wrong. So, but that doesn't mean that I endorse everything that he talks about. It's like, I I wouldn't say a lot of things that that Nick says. And not just because I'm afraid, you know, it's like, no, I don't believe that. But that's not the point. And I think that that's what I'm trying to do is get people to understand that that's not the point. And even in the way we crafted the film, we did it in a way to try to get people to understand that, if you put anybody else in this situation, you would think it's wrong. Well, why not? Well, why not him? Right. And I think it forces people to confront some of their own biases, and I think could lead some people to have a better, more consistent grasp on their positions on liberty when it comes to these things. Okay. Yeah, I think I get where you're coming from. And again, folks, I assure you, I'm not trying to like just be coy and, oh, I don't really know who this Nick Fuentes is. Like, kind of like, um, was it the Marjorie, what's her name? Taylor Green? Yeah. Or Green Taylor. Is it Green Taylor or Taylor Green? Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Green. Yeah. yeah. How she's like, oh, I, I didn't even know who this kid was. You know, yeah, I was yeah. speaking to the, yeah. you know, it, it, I'm yeah. not trying to, like, I'm being serious. I did try to research. To me, like, I went to his Wikipedia page and, like, some of the shocking things. Yeah. And it looked like the most reprehensible statements were clearly jokes, you could say, in poor taste. Yeah. But where he's being ironic, like, oh, my enemies are saying this about me, so let me lean into that. Yeah. Yeah, everybody, I love Hitler. Ha ha. You know. Yeah, he absolutely has leaned into it. And because he's been canceled now, it's, here's, a, here's one thing I want to say. Being deplatformed empowers you. Well, the one thing that I'm taking away from all of this is like, I feel more free to say what I think now than I ever did. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird, but like, I didn't realize how important that is in having personal freedom. 
the ability to say, now, a lot of people might not be able to hear it because right. my, but, but I can say what I actually believe. And I'm not that concerned about whether my libertarian friends care or the think tanks are going to ever write me any checks or whatever. I know that I carry myself with integrity. Mm-hmm. I know that I have beliefs that I'm more than willing to stand behind. And I'm not afraid of engaging in conversation or exploring ideas of people that I disagree with mm-hmm. or that I think are, you know, toxic. Right. Okay. Let me let me ask you one last concluding question. Again, more of a devil's advocate thing. Cause so I I get what you're, you know, you're when you're justifying what you're doing and saying, look, it, there's these, w- what if a left libertarian does the same kind of thing and says, right, exactly. And so that's why I think we should make a film about, you know, some lesbian teacher who lost her job because she told some sixth graders about her girlfriend and the rights calling her a groomer and all this crazy, you know, all these yeah. throwing these, these names. And, you know, we, I think a lot of the older boomer right wingers do not understand what's going on with these kids coming up who have, you know, identity issues and we need to be more sympathetic. And you can imagine a bunch of people on the right saying, are you out of your mind right now? No, we don't want to be anywhere near that stuff. The public is so mad about this that no, we don't even want to be in the same zip code. Is it looking like we're defending, talking to kids about sexual stuff? So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And listen, what I say is, is like, Hey, that's, that's totally up to that's up to them that's their choice whatever like like meaning meaning to create a piece of content or put somebody on a platform or whatever like like i really have a lot of interest in actually pursuing some stories down that rabbit hole frankly mm-hmm. and it's like all i'm saying is that's not me like me as an independent creator like i'm interested in like finding a different angle that tends to challenge the prevailing narrative or propaganda or whatever. And I'm not afraid to go against what the current right-wing talking points are get it, against it or left-wing talking points. I mean, National Review was one of the organizations that I heard reached out to try to get them to take Nick's film down. So it's like, um, you know, and so I think, um, I think it would be interesting to see stories about the people at the center of being canceled from their jobs because of how they've engaged in this, you know, gender thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it'd be interesting. I think it'd be interesting to have people humanized and for them not to just be a libs of TikTok meme, you know? And so, um, and, and not to say that, like, I would necessarily, like, I would want to, I would want to go where the conclusions lead me. You know, I might still think it's, you know, what, what's happening in those classrooms is wrong or whatever, but yeah, so it's a hot topic it's very controversial. And for whatever reason, that is what calls to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's where I really want to dig into. So as a filmmaker and as a guy, as a, a thinker, that's what gets me going. I don't expect everybody else to be that way. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, I'm going to do me and I'm going to make the kind of films and stories I want to make. I'm relying on the fact that I think there are is an audience of people who want to see courageous stories on the fringe and on the edge that get people to think and that I don't have to spoon feed people all of the answers, you know? I've had people advise me that I could just make a couple little changes to the film and it would like kind of make everything okay. And I'm like, yeah, that just feels like making things really easy and making people comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do that. So, you know, so yeah, I, I think... I don't expect any festivals to let me in with any of my films. And I hope they will. And I would hope that Freedom Fest and Anthem Film Festival will continue in the future to take a chance on provocative films and and not, you know, take them down like they have mine. And, you know, I'll likely submit future films to them again and see what happens. But, um... As of right now, like if people want to see this film, we are likely going to be having a screening somewhere in Vegas at the same time Freedom Fest is happening. And we're not having a counter festival, but it's like we're going to find a place to show the film and people that want to check it out can. And we're likely going to have a few conversations around the bigger questions around this film. Many of the things we've talked about, I'm looking to have some people who will engage in that and 
I think that will be fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. So, okay. Well, thanks, Jason. So, this is the part where you would give your Twitter handle and such, but <laughs> that's kind of a moot point. So, for people who want to know more about your stuff, is there somewhere they can go yet or still? Well, I do have a Facebook account that hasn't been recanceled, but I also have a Substack that I'm writing on right now. And we're also putting our podcast out on, which we haven't recorded one in months, but we're getting back that back up again. It's called, it's cancelproof.substack. And my article that I wrote about this whole experience with Freedom Fest, I wrote that in a Substack article. So I encourage people to just go there, subscribe, and I'm going to continue to put content out there. And yeah, that'd be great. Okay, great. So folks, again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 244 for links to the things we've been talking about here. My guest has been Jason Rank. Jason, thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, Bob. It's been a pleasure. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.